Welcome to Saturday Night the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight we're joined by a true maverick indie filmmaker, producer, writer, film lover, trailers from hell contributor, jack of many trades, an ardent fencer that's holding a sword, not putting up chain link, and the director behind such indie stalwarts as The Man from Hong Kong, BMX Bandits, The Siege of Fireplace, Gloria, and Drive Hard, and so many others, a director whom none other than Quentin Tarantino has declared to be one of his favorite filmmakers, Mr. Brian Trenchard-Smith. Hi, Brian. Hello, Steve. Thank you for having me. I almost uh, ran out of breath there describing you. Of course, that only begins to scratch the surface. <laughs> hey, you, you, what lies beneath? Uh, anyway, so I just had cataract surgery. I think I'll put these back on again. Uh, anyway, thank you for having me, and thank you for your you know, laudatory uh, uh, you know, introduction. I, I appreciate it. Uh, well, and, uh, you know... So. As you know, I'm a big fan of yours, and I still plan on us working together on films in the future until we're ready to drop. Um, mm -hmm. But I have to ask you, you have been a student of film from uh, from very way back, and you continue to, to be a supporter of filmmaking. I often ask this question about the movie business today. It seems rather fragmented. It seems rather chaotic um there seems to be an awful lot of movie um, excuse me an awful lot of money being spent on so-called studio tent poles and then end of the year uh oscar bait which tends to be very depressing but the concept of entertaining movies for the masses not just the 18 to 24s seems to be less than less than thrilling these days do you have any comments yeah i I, I think, unfortunately, the studios are spending far too much money on uh, films and hoping that just w one big release will save them. Uh, and indeed, uh, Barbie has saved cinema, uh, and good for her. Uh, and uh, uh, it, 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 she certainly reawakened the joy of the collective experience in a darkened room. Uh, where your total attention is upon the drama that's playing out in front of you uh, and you're not distracted by um, people walking in and out of a living room, uh, phone calls, etc. Um, you, you appreciate cinematic drama as it is meant to be uh, experienced in an ideal situation. So, uh, and hopefully with all of the upheaval, economic upheaval that's going on in the business and, and the way that streaming has is a much more convenient way to experience entertainment um uh, you know the, it's it's been hard recently for these cinemas to to compete but every now and again something that they really want to see uh, comes on and uh, and they they come flooding back in in, in great numbers uh, but uh i you know i i wish that you know more money was spent on 
making a, uh, well, a script really good, really compelling, really fresh, and less money perhaps spent on, uh, on, on marketing. You know, <laughs> ultimately a, a really good film, uh, a really good story, uh, it, it will catch fire and, and spread. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's, that's my feeling. Well, you, but, you, uh, you've, all, you've always put very strong entertainment value into your films. I mean, you, you, you are a filmmaker who I would not consider to be idiosyncratic, uh, who, who just um, films for your own enjoyment. I think you seem to always have the audience in mind. And I think a lot of your films across many different types of genres are always uh, try for the entertainment as as I think a true showman should be like. Well, I, I make films for the audience of which I consider myself to be part. And uh, uh, what would I like to see in this genre? Uh, you know, I've been in love with the, the moving image since I was four uh, and was a, as, as much of a cinema addict as I could possibly be during childhood and teen years. Um, uh, and, you know, I, uh, I found that it's, uh, um, you know, it, it was, I got a lot of influence uh, from, you know, uh, the masters like John Ford, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock particularly. Um, and uh, so I grew up sort of seeing, the, you know, the work of the great ones and, and including some of the great foreign directors. I, my first Kurosawa movie, it was Seven Samurai. I saw that at 14. Uh, and uh, The Virgin Spring at uh, 15, uh, Bergman. So I've, I've, I've been fortunate to have had a fairly you know, broad cinema education in my uh, childhood in England. Then I went to Australia to try and practice it. And luckily, I went to the place where um, there were opportunities, more opportunities than there were for me in England in 1966. Uh, and uh, Australia gave me the chance to, um, uh, well, I was working within three weeks uh, of landing uh, as a news cutter and then eventually uh, then a promo maker. Uh, uh, and then finally, you know, that led to trailers for movies and, uh, and then eventually, yeah, that's that led to my first film, uh, Man from Hong Kong. And uh, one of, part of my philosophy was um, uh, give the audience pace. Uh, I've always felt that films are too long and too slow. Uh, you know, um, give them lots of stuff, uh, but you don't have to take two and a half hours to do it. Uh, and I think it's a good motto for today, actually. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when you were when anyway. you were when you were a little boy in England, did you frequent a certain cinema, or did you have a plethora of cinemas in your neighborhood? Well, I was certainly a, a regular denizen of the Palace Aldershot, uh, uh, and uh, but I, I grew up in a small English village, uh, Odiham in Hampshire, and they had a cinema there. It was my father commanded the Air Force Base. Uh, there in a small English village, three thousand people, seven pubs, and uh, but a, a double bill twice a week, uh, and a, and a, a reissue on Sunday late afternoons of, of another double bill. So you know, in the school holidays, I was in seventh heaven, um, and that's where I got my cinema education. 
along with watching the, the newsreels, the cartoons and the trailers. Um, and the trailers fascinated me because I wanted, well, you know, why did they choose that bit? Uh, ah, hmm, I go and see the film, I see. Uh, and oh no, there, was, there are a couple of other bits they might have chosen, hmm, interesting. So somehow this caught my fancy uh, as a young man and it, it stuck. And so I think I gravitated towards editing uh, as a result of seeing so much material and kind of evaluating it in my own mind and, and in picking up the rudiments of editing without ever reading a book uh, about editing. I don't think I read a book about editing until I was already directing. I read a, a book, I think Ralph Rosenblum wrote it, when the shooting stops, the, the movie begins. Um, uh, he, he, had un, he, he, he did not have nice things to say about William Friedkin, incidentally, one of his movies he edited. Uh, <laughs> but Friedkin was a master. Uh, so, um, and we just, uh, but we... anyway, that was my first, you know, that was the only book I, I, the first book I read about editing and I already sort of uh, got a few ideas about it by then. Now, um, you, now you said that you, while you were a, a young man going to the movies, your dad commanded the local Air Force base. Now, your dad, uh, as you and I have spoken about, uh, and me being the great escape file that I am, your father was a member of the X organization at Stalaglyph Three, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, he, he also participated in the Warburg wire job, where they put a ladder up one wire uh, an articulated you know, extension of the ladder across to the second wire, people dropped off the end. Unfortunately, my father uh, was you know, crawling along in, at his turn, um, and uh, there were 12 people per escape site, um, and his ladder was slightly faulty, and it, uh, it gave way, and it fell between the wires, and uh, uh, of course, the the Germans let off, you know, thousands of rounds of ammunition in all directions because they knew what was going on. And the, the camp, you know, lights had been fused. Uh, and uh, my father recalled, you know, you know, pressing himself into the sand and feeling that there were bullets hitting the sand nearby, uh, not very close, but nearby. Uh, and uh, um, so, but he survived and he got 30 days on bread and water in the cooler. Um, and then he went to Stalagloff Three, where he was one of those who dug, um, and it was a tough experience as far as uh, I, he, he would tell me, but he never liked to talk about the war. I had to prize information out of him uh, with great difficulty. But apparently he was about, you know, the, 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 those who dug were balloted for an order in which they would get out. They planned to try and get 200 out. My father was about 91, 92, and there were 20 ahead of him. Uh, he, he reckoned when gunfire erupted uh, and that the first, uh, the, the, the 73rd escapee had been spotted. Uh, and uh, so everyone had to crawl backwards down that tiny tunnel in the dark. Yeah, I, I mean, you, it, what those people went through, the tunnelers, uh, is amazing. Uh, my father, you know, like me, is six, well, I was 6'1", was about half an inch shorter than me, and uh, uh, 
and 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 a, you know, a tall, well-built man, and uh, you know that they, they, they were narrow those tunnels. But you know, so if, yeah, luckily I think only the tunnelers were people who could stand claustrophobia. Anyway, so uh, he did have that. Uh, you know, that was you know uh, the cop. Well, he had four years as a prisoner of war, uh, and then uh, was liberated by the Russians, uh, and uh, eventually got back to England. Uh, O'Brien, uh, uh, was your dad a fighter pilot? Yes, he 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 flew Hurricanes and Spitfires. Well, he flew over eighty different types of aircraft in his twenty-five year uh, <clears throat> Air Force career. Uh, he left flying school with a rating of uh, exceptional as a pilot in 1931 or 32 <clears throat> after two years. And within nine months, he was back at the Cranwell you know, Central Flying School as an instructor. And, and that's how he spent a lot of the 1930s teaching other people to fly and flying all the new planes uh, so he could pass on that knowledge. Then he did, uh, sort of 15 months in on the northwest frontier of, uh, uh, of India, was involved in protecting you know, British columns and supplies uh, uh, from the air, and uh, uh, was involved you know, in, in certain anti-insurgent actions, and, uh, but then resumed teaching at flying school until um, the war came. And uh, I married my mother, um, in May, and the war broke out. Uh, you know, in September. Right. He was shot down in forty-one, and returned in forty-five, and I was the result in nineteen forty-six. Uh, very so good. Very good. A productive move on his part, absolutely. Very productive. Yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he was a great. But my, I had great parents who encouraged me when I came up with this quixotic idea at thirteen of. I wanted to be a film director like Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, then, uh, you know, I, my parents said, sure, go for it. They had no connections in the British film industry. And my father you know, had left Australia in 1930 before, though there was actually a silent film industry in Australia. And there was some couple of you know, quite impressive films uh, for the term of his natural life. Uh, directed by Raymond Longford, where there were scenes with uh, hundreds of extras playing convicts. You know, they, they, the, the silence you know, had some scale, even in Australia. Uh, and uh, so, uh, anyway, so uh, uh, that's, you know, um, yeah, I, Australia was, you know, gave me the opportunity to, to make films because, um, you know, if it, it's kind of country where, in, certainly in the mid '60s, where if you said, uh, you know, I can do that, um, they'll give you a go, uh, have a go, mate. You know. Uh, so I, uh, I put up I put up the poster from the man from Hong Kong. You can see a bit of it here. It's uh, it's a bit scrunched because uh, I can't show the full poster. But um, tell, walk us through how. Uh, the um, the experience of directing your first feature. How did that come to you? Uh, what what happened that got you that gig? Well, it's a long story, and I will do a shameless plug for my book, Adventures in the B Movie Trade, where you can have the uh, long expanded version of our conversation. Runs to five hundred pages and has two hundred pictures of 
uh, from my archives uh, and uh, is a thumbnail sketch of a 50 year career as a, you know, a working director. Uh, not, not, not particularly prestigious, but luckily um, working uh, every year. Uh, you know, I've made 41 long forms and I've participated in 12 different television series, uh, as well as, you know, all the other little things mentioned. Uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it's a fun book. Uh, and, uh, um, yeah, look at that. Wonderful. That's Jimmy Wong Yu and his Shaw Brothers days uh, when he was a hot star there. Beach of the War Gods was something that he did uh, when he left Shaw Brothers, broke his contract, uh, and joined Raymond Chow. And uh, Beach of the War Gods is really quite good, sort of a, uh, a magnificent seven samurai version by the sea. Uh, anyway, I, I recommend it. Uh, would, so, would it. Would it be fair to call this era the era of the chop sake? Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, that was the sort of semi-derisive tone uh, in which these films were described. Uh, and of course, I held a lot of them that had never previously seen the light of day outside of a United States uh, Chinatown were suddenly dumped on the English language market after the Bruce Lee sensation. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of, you know, end endless films with dragon in the title. Uh, but, uh, um, but, you know, when I, I wanted to make Man from Hong Kong for um, different reasons. So firstly, I wanted to make, always wanted to make a James Bond movie. You know, I visited the set of Dr. No when I was 16 with the School Film Society and was shown the, the incredible reactor set that looks so big, but in fact, it's the power of lenses that made it look so big and the, what you place in the foreground and what you place in the distance. And, uh, Ken Adams sets, you know, great. Well, you know, James Bond, you made a great study of the, his, of the movies. Oh yeah, but, well, I, anyway, I, I, I was just gonna say that uh, in watching The Man from Hong Kong today, I don't know if it was a subtle homage, but there's a moment where it's Jimmy, right? Jimmy, you're leading yeah, man. Jimmy Wong Yu. Jimmy yeah. is driving a sports car and a woman is telling him over the uh, the phone that you drive down the road and you may, it seemed like you were making a little homage perhaps to Sean and the Sunbeam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, hey, borrow from the best and uh, let people know what you're doing. I mean, it, it was fortunate that George Lazenby, you know, after he ditched Bond, uh, which was, he recognized was a big mistake, but uh, he he then had to find someone else who would, um, you know, give him a, 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 the opportunities that he hoped would come with Bond, that he was told would by all the people who said, you don't need Bond. There are all these movies that will earn you much more money coming up, and they all folded. Uh, he'd burned his bridges. But so he had two choices, go and make spaghetti westerns and Euro thrillers, um, you know, kind of like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, that's where you go when you've been, when, when your main career is washed up. Uh, or go to Asia, which are some, was beginning, some people were beginning to do it, uh, but, uh, uh, but he was a prize for Raymond Chow, you know, the man who played James Bond, and, and they put a huge amount of money behind launching him as James Bond. 
hence the fact that he could not be forgiven for walking out. Um, uh, then uh, they thought, good, well, let's see what, uh, what, what we can get some mileage out of his name. What, so what, they what, had him under contract. Yeah. And uh, so he was the logical person to play the bad guy. So we have a sort of, I, I wrote the thing in, in the storyline for Bruce Lee. And the day I took a plane to Hong Kong to start to make a documentary about him, do an interview with him during that week, all arranged by Golden Harvest. Um, I was going to whip my six pages out of my bag and pitch it to him and see what would happen. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I got on the plane and he had just died. That oh, my time. goodness. And I arrived in Hong Kong to find that he, had, he was dead. Uh, and I, you know, with Golden Harvest's help, I made a documentary about the world of Kung Fu in which he, some of his films featured. Uh, and I, I did get footage of the funeral. And uh, anyway, it's, uh, uh, but it started a relationship with Golden Harvest that you know, when I pitched this at a later stage, uh, um, they thought, well, we're looking for co-productions to expand. So, and it just, it, it all came together relatively quickly about six months after I submitted the screenplay. Uh, so and off we off we went, and uh, it's still yeah forty eight years after I shot it. Um, it it, it still seems to please a, a, a certain audience. Um, you know, when, in, when they, they when they get into it, uh, and uh, so I'm I'm glad that you've been enjoying it. Oh yeah, no, I have been. the The action sequences are 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 just a lot of fun. I I um. I was, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that Tarantino is one of your fans and certainly his movies get a, quite a bit more violent than uh, than back in those days where they didn't kill everybody. They punched them a lot, but they didn't kill mm -hmm. them. Today, you uh, in, a, in a battle like that, you probably kill. Well, you know, obviously the 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 88s versus uh, Uma Thurman in killed bill mm -hmm. one yeah it was just it had very lots of bloodshed but um so you uh you got your first film from raymond chow and how big a budget did you have well i i had yeah under five hundred thousand dollars we went to 550 because uh the distributor in england said why don't you replace the title song or the, the song that is underscoring the, the, the title man from hong kong originally a, a song called Power, kind of Matt Monroe, James Bond opening title, uh, blasting out. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they said, well, you know, there's this hot band who's coming up uh, and they've got, you know, the Beatles arranger, Richard Hewson, working with them. They could come up with a hit song to replace your title song, uh, which runs nearly four minutes, uh, uh, covers the whole opening title sequence, uh, and, uh, um, and a two-minute two uh, pop radio version, and which will go out to, yeah, and generate publicity for the film. Uh, and so we said, okay, we'll do that. We spent the extra money, uh, and it became a number one hit in the UK, number one hit in Australia, number two hit 
in Japan, and I think it even came to number two in the US. Uh, but actually, but it took it, it was a little after the film finished its release, so that happened. So, but, but it was a catchy song, "Sky High," uh, and you can hear and it occasionally the, in elevators. Who's the Who's the singer? Uh, well, it's it was called well the band was called Jigsaw. Uh, in Australia, they were known as British Jigsaw because there was an Australian Jigsaw. But J Jigsaw were a one-hit wonder. They were going to really hit the jackpot, and this was a big hit for them. But somehow, they never had another hit. Well, just to give you an, an idea, my wife walked into the room while I was watching the movie a few hours ago, and I had the song on and just said, I know that song. So obviously, and she's literally the last person you'll see going to a genre film but she right. knew that song so obviously that was a plus for it um yeah. what uh what uh how, how um in addition to supplying you uh with the production value did they also supply you with your leading man was he under contract i think you said he was yes yeah well wong Yu was under contract to them and as was george lazenby but george lazenby was australian and therefore qualified for the Australian half of the co-production. Uh, uh, and how did you like working with George? Oh, George was great. George was very humble. He, he had been humbled by the experience of, uh, of saying no to Bond and finding out, you know, that, uh, you know, they don't like it. Uh, and uh, when you do that. So, uh, and so he was a totally a team player and, uh, um, I think he did very well. You know, I, I, I could have given him better material to, to better dialogue to speak. Uh, but I was writing a screenplay in shorthand. Um, my, my concept was, you know, the, a total action picture. And the formula is one action scene, one dialogue scene, one action scene, one dialogue scene. And so we go on. Uh, because I recognize in 1974, and I've actually had recognized it before, uh, that action is the universal currency of the movie market. And uh, it transcends all language barriers. And uh, for an Australian film to make a mark in the world, it better have something that the world wants to watch and the world wants to watch action. Of course, there wasn't any tradition of making action in Australia. Occasionally, you know, you know, 40,000 horsemen yeah, obviously used some, some uh, well, army cavalry and, uh, in, in 1940 and, and, and maybe um, a few rodeo riders for the, the horse falls. But, you know, there was no tradition of, uh, of action filmmaking. And whenever the Americans came in to make something, they brought in their own stunt team. But occasionally, as some Australians got picked up as as ancillary supports, and you know there were a few that had 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 a little bit of experience. Some Australians had worked overseas uh, in England, particularly. And uh, the lead uh, stuntman in my very first stunt documentary, Bob Woodham, and uh, had worked overseas uh, on uh, you know uh, uh, you only live twice. He had done. He was one of the many ninjas that rappel down from the top of the volcano. Okay. Uh, Speaking of amazing Ken Adams sets. Yeah, exactly. No, it's okay. what, what a guy. Uh, anyway, uh, I, have a so, quick, I have a quick question for you, uh, given that he 
originally, I believe, came from Tasmania. What do, how do Australians in general feel about Errol Flynn? Well, you know, he has, you know, he's, you know, kind of a wild colonial boy. Uh, you kind of, you, 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 you got to love him, but, you know, he's a bit of a bad boy. You know, it's like the drummer in the band. Uh, you know, don't let your daughter date, date the drummer. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he had a wild life and you, 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 you read books about him. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, he had a taste for the bottle and uh, it eventually killed him. And he, he had grown into quite a good actor uh, over the years. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there are some films of his where he actually shows some surprising depth, including, including one of his very last films. Um, but, uh, uh, but, yeah, so Australians kind of, you know, admired their hero, went over and made, became a big Hollywood star. I mean, I thought that Grant Page, uh, who I discovered, uh, in this first documentary I made, and I then made you know four more with him called Danger Freaks, and I, I became his manager and created you know that film over there, Death Cheaters, uh, for him, uh, and uh, and put him in Man from Hong Kong and created Stunt Rock for him because I thought that he 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 had charisma, he had charm, rugged good looks. And he could do amazing things. So if you had a hero or a hero's sidekick or a villain that you could see he's actually doing that stuff, you know, they're not pulling back to a wide shot and the double's doing it. You know, he's actually on fire. He's actually climbing that, you know, 100 foot cliff uh, or he's dangling from that rope at 600 feet above the floor of, uh, in, in the Blue Mountains of Sydney. Um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, audiences, that, you know, that's what they came to the Nickelodeons to see, uh, the acts of daring do, uh, in which were then, which were done hopefully um, without incident. Uh, <laughs> not always the case in early Hollywood, uh, but, yeah, but we managed to you know, um, come out pretty much unscathed. Uh, and, and would uh, you would you repeat this gentleman's name again, please? Grant Page, Australia's greatest stuntman, uh, really the equivalent of Hal Needham in Hollywood. Now right. uh, so Hal went on to direct lots of movies and had, had another career, but as a as a stuntman uh, and then as a stunt coordinator, um, you know, Hal was amazing. Uh, similarly, Grant Page was amazing. Um, uh, he just had an innate talent for, you know, challenging, you know, the laws of gravity and physics uh, and bending them to his will. Uh, and uh, it, we hit it off because he, 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 we both understood that it's not what the, uh, it's not what it's actually, well, it is not as dangerous as it looks. It is what the camera sees as opposed to uh, and how you manipulate the audience's perspective on the act. And you can break it into little sections uh, if necessary. But 
we understood the, the the dynamics of screen action quite well. Uh, he 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 devised things that would yeah I could then shoot in in interesting ways. Uh, he introduced me to hang gliding, and so I wrote hang gliding into the Man from Hong Kong. It was a novel hobby at the time in 1973 uh, when we were starting to shoot early you know, prototype sequences. By, the, by the way, there, there's some hang gliding over Hong Kong. Did you have any issue with the local city authorities and running a hang glider through urban Hong Kong? Well, uh, they were concerned about us sinking a battleship in the harbor. Uh, we had to insure the harbor for $5,000. Well, I think our insurance policy overall, but uh, it included collisions with ships and potential damage to ships. And for a, you know, a one-hour flight or something, uh, or you know, maybe we had a two-hour window to do it, uh, $5,000. Uh, and uh, we, we we actually had to make three flights. We didn't charge us for the, the last, well, we may not have actually told them about the second flight and they didn't, <laughs> no one bothered about the third one because it flew into the police academy. So no one thought that, uh, which is where he lands officially. Right. He actually lands in two places. We joined the three, the three flights together into one. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, uh, anyway, it was funny, I, you know, that, that, that when they, I said, I, we're going to have to you know, spend $5,000 for this shot. Are you sure this is going to be worth it, worth it? And I said, well, yeah. Uh, and, uh, sure it was. They, they, yeah. When Grant, cause people, yeah, had difficulty believing Grant could actually do what I said he could do. And sure enough, every time he did, um, the second flight, which takes him, he's crossed the harbor. Now he's crossing uh, Hong Kong Island. Uh, 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 he's taken off from Kowloon and crossed the harbor going, and he's passing by Victoria Peak uh, and heading towards Aberdeen. Uh, and we were up there on Victoria Peak and with the, the Hong Kong crew and Grant said, well, I'm gonna take off from over there I'm going to fly around there, past those skyscrapers, and I'm going to land in that little park down there. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> okay. Interesting. We'll, we'll, and so we, we, we shot it, and he landed exactly where he said in that park down there. And, uh, very, very cool. Well, anyway, speaking, so. speaking, speaking of big action, uh, a few years later, uh, you went off to the Philippines to make the siege of Firebase Gloria. And I have to tell you, um, I watched it the other night, and there's a lot of production value in that movie. I mean, I was amazed at the amount of people in the fighting sequences. Did you think that you would get that amount of production uh, value? I mean, sometimes you're, you make a big battle sequence and they, they send you 10 extras. You certainly had hundreds of people working. Well, yeah, there were. I think our biggest day, we had you know nearly two hundred people. Generally, you know, I had fifty to a hundred. Where it, it whittled down, you know, uh, and uh, finally you're finishing the whole thing with ten, you know. Uh, but if you've got the big wide stuff where you need it, uh, then you can plug with uh, fewer people uh, after that. But you go to the Philippines because 
extras are $10 a day. Well, they were. Uh, and, you know, $10 was actually not bad for them. Uh, well, the, the uh, American crews had been going there for a while. I remember uh, Sam Fuller took a crew there for Merrill's Marauders. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, Van Heflin and uh, Aldo Ray were there for Cry of Battle. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, how did that movie come together? Did you start with a script or did something come to you? Well, the producer, Tony Ganane, who'd made, you know, he'd done Turkey Shoot, um, brought me a script, which was a, a fairly cold-blooded, you know, hard-edged Vietnam battle picture, um, which didn't really have much heart. It was, it was it had a strong vein of cynicism, a lot of which I liked, but it needed heart, and it needed someone like Lee Ermey to give it heart. Now, I didn't know, uh, you know, when I first read the script uh, about Lee Ermey, but then Full Metal Jacket just came out and uh, uh, he got the, uh, you know, Boston Golden Globe uh, Critics Award. uh, And suddenly he was the man, the cast. uh, And, uh, and but they wanted a bigger B-movie name uh, like Wings Hauser or let's say an international market name uh, like Wingshauser, uh, because you know what we might have thought of B movies in in the U.S. Vice Squad and uh, you know uh, things like that. They they are you know they were bigger movies in Europe and Asia. Um, and so uh, so it, it came together you know very well, um, and uh, you know they made let's say an interesting if somewhat combative pair. Um, and uh, rumor, rumor, rumor has it that they were not fond of each other. Is that a rumor? I, I think that, I think uh, Lee sadly is no longer with us. I, I love him. Uh, he's, uh, I have, you know, I put him yeah, uh, in, in, in Megiddo up there, Omega Code 2, playing you know, the United States president as a, um, a, uh, a blend of Truman and Eisenhower. That's what I said, and he he does it well. Uh, uh, but anyway, he, he Lee and, and and Wings did not exactly hit it off. They had, I'd say, different professional styles. And as director, I I and circus ringmaster and group therapist and all the other things a director has to be. Um, I was trying to sort of keep the peace and uh, sort of. You know, uh, between let's say a, a method actor and a highly disciplined ex-soldier, uh, who had a, an ex-soldier's you know discipline towards the acting process, punctuality, things like that. Um, but uh, anyway, the mat- probably was the matter was compounded by the fact that it, I, I wanted to plug into Lee's Marine Corps expertise and so he and I have additional uh, dialogue credit on the end credits of the film because we would brainstorm some scenes together uh, the severed head scene you know does anyone know who these can't belong to this is Corporal Miller he's dead uh, uh, that scene was brainstormed by us uh, sitting on sandbags uh, 
as the sun was going down, waiting for the you know to put the get the lights up on uh, another scene outside you know you know you know the, the Sarabachi you know, speech scene, and we came up with this uh, uh, the scene that plugged into some of the kind of shtick that Lee had used to his platoon in Vietnam. He did uh, two and a half tours in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, uh, so um, so there were yeah, good moments like that. So uh, the net effect of me giving improv moments to Lee was that I needed to give improv moments to Wings, which I did. And uh, Wings wanted to write a whole scene with his backstory in it. Uh, which the producers said, oh, absolutely not. And I said, no, let's just shoot it uh, because you never know. And I shot it and directed it as it made, made it work. You know, uh, he'd written a good, if somewhat, you know, hard on sleeve scene, but it worked. The film needed it. And it, it, uh, it rounded out his character and it made his self sacrifice at the end of the story uh, even more meaningful. So, uh, I could see the merits of that, but you know, I, as far as Wings was concerned, you know, I, I had broken faith with him. He was expecting to be really he, the emphasis the, the, of the movie, and that Ali Ermi was going to be the sidekick, and really the focus of the story was going to be on this PTSD afflicted, uh, uh, you know, Vietnam. Uh, you know, soldier who, you know, was very good at his trade. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I guess I found the aspects of Ali Ermi's character and all the sort of texture about, you know, what would have been like in Vietnam. Uh, I, I wanted to bring that out. I, I, so I tended, you know, uh, I, I was certainly, you know, tended to favor Lee uh, in, in in my emphasis, oh yeah, uh, but and I wanted I wanted wings to look good, and wings is great. He he really does capture the burnout uh, of the you know that those soldiers went through. Uh, the other uh, the other the war aspect, drives people mad. The other aspect of the film, which is very telling, and this doesn't happen in combat films very often. You do go to the other side frequently to give humanity to the Viet Cong. And I thought that side of it uh, was fascinating. In fact, the gentleman you got to play the uh, colonel in charge of the Viet Cong attack, I thought was very good. Robert Aravello, yes. Uh, he was a Filipino star uh, who you know, had, had his, his romantic lead days and was now settling into older roles. And he learned the Vietnamese phonetically. Uh, and uh, did very well. And then, uh, uh, you know, he, he certainly emotionally conveyed the part very well. Uh, so you, uh, you, sent, you sent me the prologue you created that uh, was eventually cut from the film, which I thought was a nice bookend for the picture. I think you told me in your email that uh, the producers were concerned that the movie would be too pre, pre too pro Viet Cong or a little too sympathetic. Yeah, well, yeah. Frankly, as one producer put it, well, he said that there had been a sales convention by the distributor, uh, 
where my director's cut had been shown and the, the Australian producers had pr approved it. Uh, uh, but then the distributor who obviously was gonna pay upon not just delivery, but that quote, acceptance. Uh, and that's how they can hold you up, you see, if they want to, and they're or just not 10% off the price. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, uh, the, yeah, it's a trick, you know, so it's, uh, but uh, anyway, the, they had this sales convention down in Laguna Beach, apparently, and everyone got a bit drunk and they ran the movie. And after, uh, after they, they saw it, they, somebody said, you know, too much emphasis on the goddamn gooks. And that was a quote that was heard at that convention. Um, and, and that was reported to me by one of the producers who was attending, or, or let's say was told about this uh, uh, later. And uh, so uh, I was told, you know, that, you know, the, the original opening and the original closing in which we uh, are in uh, 15 years after the battle of the siege of Firebase Gloria, we see the Ali Omi characters not adjusted to civilian life. He's now become a, a, a refugee uh, processing officer in Manila, processing yeah, boat people uh, who have fled uh, the, the liberated Vietnam. Uh, and he sees a, a familiar face in the crowd of the refugees he's processing. And he looks closely, I know that face, I know that face. And the film flashes back to the, you know, the beginning where the patrol discovers the presence of North Vietnamese regulars and, and Viet Cong and the battle, you know, unfolds and takes place and uh, Lee loses his best friend. Uh, and uh, we flash back to the wharf at Manila where he's looking at this man whom he now recognizes from uh, the cut on his face because he locked in Mortal Kombat with that man and cut his face in, in the struggle with a bayonet. And now, 15 years later, uh, he recognizes that face. And so he approaches him and we wonder, you know, how does he feel about his former enemy when, you know, he suffered so much loss uh, uh, in the war. And, uh, but it, when Lee comes up to him, uh, he just extends his hand uh, and says in Vietnamese, welcome. Now, so I wanted to make a film about war and reconciliation. Hmm. Uh, and that was the message of the film. Also, I wanted to, to make a, you know, a good gutsy battle movie, you know, Zulu being you know, a, a role model for me in which you do give some honor to uh, the other side, because wars are fought by brave young people. Uh, uh, it's politicians who start the wars. It's uh, you know, ordinary Joes who, uh, and Jules who fight the war. They do the best they can. They are not demons necessarily, though, of course, people can behave like <clears throat> demons. But um, <clears throat> you, you've got to have sympathy for the ordinary soldier who is obeying orders on either side of the conflict. Um, that's why there, were, there were some yeah. there were some rather startling scenes in the movie. One of them uh, was when um, 
I believe it's Wings's character instructs the men after a particularly brutal night fighting to go around and shoot the wounded. Uh, mm. Did you get any pushback on anybody from that type of tactic? No, well, because I wanted it to be authentic. And frankly, you that was something that did happen. Uh, one of the writers served in Vietnam and in uh, Australian forces in Vietnam and culled all these stories of, from you know, what he was told about things that happened in the Tet Offensive in 1968. And uh, if you had repelled a, you know, a, a wave attack and there were wounded out there close to the wire, um, moaning and yelling, and possibly going to throw a grenade uh, or shot, shoot at you in the dark, um, so they would sometimes send people out to, uh, you know, to put a stop to the wounded doing that. Uh, now, the, yeah, it, 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 if they tried to, to actually bring the wounded in, they, they would be shot at. So it's, it was the moral dilemma there is, is, is an interesting one. Uh, and uh, we just depicted with uh, quite coldly and let people draw their own conclusions as to whether you know, that was a, you know, uh, that was the right decision. Uh, militarily, was it right? Morally, etc. That, you know, people can draw their own conclusions. But I wanted people to understand the circumstances and, uh, and, and Wingshauser's character explained why, uh, right. from no, that, in, that was his good. value system, why it was necessary. We may disagree with that value system, but... You know, again, um, when you're, yeah, you're facing ten to one odds, you tend to be as, yeah, as pragmatic as possible, I suppose. You have a reputation for taking little budgets and making them big on the screen. One of the movies I saw of yours that really showed off that skill was Britannic. Oh, you like uh, Britannic? I like oh, Britannic. I, I was interested in the history. Uh, of that ship. I didn't realize that the Titanic had a sister ship. I guess she had two. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, uh, the character that we took uh, uh, was, you know, we called Vera Campbell, but she was based upon Violet Jessup, who was a White Star uh, shipping line, uh, initially sort of stewardess on the uh, Olympic in 1912, the first of the big superliners, uh, and it collided with HMS Hawk on the way out of uh, Southampton Harbour on its maiden voyage, punched a hole in the side. No one was hurt, red faces all round. Um, but uh, that was uh, that was the first accident. Then, uh, of course, you know, 19. Uh, then Titanic, of course, was the next ship, uh, and uh, she was assigned to that, uh, and the, the ship went down, and she was plucked from the water uh, and saved, and then she volunteered to be a nurse on the Britannic, the third uh, of the White Star shipping line vessels that were now uh, commandeered by the British government and was being used as a hospital ship. And 
that hospital ship on which Violet Jessup sailed um, also uh, sank in the Aegean Sea. Was it a mine? Was it a torpedo? Was it sabotage? Uh, the Admiralty listed its sinking spot eight miles from where it was eventually discovered many years later by Jacques, well, 50 years later by Jacques Cousteau. Um, I wonder why. The Germans always claimed that it had been carrying munitions, and that's why they sank it. Uh, anyway, we concocted a, a florid melodrama around these facts, which, uh, or the basis of these facts, in which I could then do sort of World War II naval drama stuff, uh, you know, uh, lo potential lovers caught up in a spy mystery. Uh, you know, it's like Eye of the Needle on a doomed ship uh, and uh, where they don't realize they're falling in love with the enemy. Um, and uh, so, uh, I, you know, I, I like genre cocktails. You know, throw a bunch of stuff in, stir well, uh, and hope people enjoy the froth. Uh, so, uh, uh, and so, yeah, of course, naturally, reviewers thought, you know, it was preposterous, you know, and, uh, and you know, variety, you know, uh, you know anyway, so, but, but I, I'm, I'm kind of pleased with it. And uh, I think it plays well in foreign languages too. I mean, the French Blu-ray is rather, rather nice. Well, um, you're presented with the challenge of, uh, of, a, of a super liner. Uh, I think uh, James Cameron probably spent uh, a good chunk of his budget recreating the Titanic. You probably had uh, one hundredth of the money he had. Uh, how did you how did you bring the Britannic to life? Well, it, it came to digital life uh, in 1999. Uh, and for that era of digital effects, it's pretty good. Uh, and the first of all, the you know, Pat Corbett, who's you know uh, no longer with us, uh, but a great guy. Uh, he his little digital effects company in New Jersey. Firstly, they built a, a you know got a scale you know one of those buy make it yourself plastic models of the of the Titanic. They built it, they painted it, they made it look beautiful, they scanned it, and they created it in their computer, and then they reskinned it in the way that uh, the Britannic was painted as a hospital ship. Uh, and uh, they had a good water program, and so uh, they yeah, can, could con uh, create the entire environment that I was looking for. And I also wanted a submarine, and I wanted uh, uh, other warships and uh, various things. They even created a digital... 1916 taxi for me. Uh, taken by we took, yeah, you know, they took a picture of the, st the still of the taxi that we had parked uh, because we had nowhere to drive it. He could slide into shop, and then they took stills from all perspectives and they created the taxi. So uh, then they could also digitally enhance the deck and add things to the left or the right or wherever. So it was an early exercise in, you know, in that kind of digital big picture making, but we had to do it for, well, initially it was 2.9 in at Bray Studios, the home of Hammer uh, in England. But um, we eventually spent 3.4 
that we, we needed to spend more money on the visual effects. But the visual effects cost under $200,000 for the whole movie, did which you, is pretty good. Brian, did and you? I, 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 I went yeah, to a 3D exposition, which James Cameron was attending, and so was Steven Spielberg. And I you know, briefly chatted with them both uh, uh, separately as we waited in the DGA lobby to go in. And then I walked in with beside Mr. Cameron and I said, Mr. Cameron, sir, I made Britannic on your catering budget. Um, I said with a cheeky <laughs> face and he gave me a look. And then he said, you know, there was some quite good CGI in that film. But then he moved on. So he did see it. He actually watched it. So did I was surprised. Want... I thought he, he, he would be, you know, he would think it beneath him. But no, no, he's not like that. He's, Brian, he's, he's... Brian, did you actually shoot on an actual ship or was everything created in the uh, digital range? Well, I shot on uh, great sets uh, that Rob Harris created at Bray Studios. He did uh, the Poirot series. He, he was the king of period art direction for television in England. Uh, the cinematographer, Ivan Strasberg, did, did many movies, including you know, Bloody Sunday, and I think he shot one of the Bourne Green, you know, I think he was on one of the Bourne Identity movies, that, uh, Green Grass, you know, uh, anyway, one of those. Uh, so he, he was a great cinematographer, I was benefited from his contribution to the look. Um, and there's a small studio tank at Bray, so we were able to do the interior water scenes uh, in, in this sort of 20-foot tank. Uh, we built cabins, uh, and then we you know, could raise the water and lower it, uh, and so forth. And we could lower cabins into the water, things like that, in a small 20-foot tank. Um, so the in the we built this sort of the boilers, a section of the boilers in the studio, but the big boilers were at a big museum pumping station, uh, which had boilers, uh, had turbines and pumping you know, and big sort of you know, stuff that would have been similar to what they would have had in the engine room of the, of the uh, White Star shipping lines. So that's how we put the whole, the various elements of, uh, of uh, the ship together from a combination of studio, uh, location, and uh, the, some, the, the dining room and uh, some corridors were in the, uh, and the big staircase uh, because they, had, they, they treated it like a building, you know, like a normal building. So it had staircases with rails, as you can see in, in the camera movie. Um, so that with the Britannic was similar. So we had a found a great staircase that or uh, that people you know that would be believable on, on a ship. So a combination of all those locations when fused together uh, and fought through and how they blend uh, or little pieces of connecting tissue you need, they add up to the level of production value that uh, we were able to create in 24 days of shooting. And you had John Reese Davies from the Lord of the Rings movie yes. as your captain. Yes. He must have been a hoot. Yeah. He was a hoot. No, he, he, 
he certainly plays the part with a degree of Victorian gusto, shall we say. Uh, and uh, uh, but uh, I thought, no, well, he's he is he's a little Dickensian in his uh, way he treats the uh, the you know, um, the girl, but uh, um, and and everybody really. But uh, uh, but I thought, no, he, that makes him a, a really interesting character. That's what he came up with, and I thought, hey, let's go with it. Um, he's captain of a ship. You're accustomed to the sound of your own voice and everyone agreeing with you. Uh, in, in and the, that's how he saw the role. In, in nautical terms, uh, or I should say in uh, architectural terms, was the Britannic an exact duplicate of the Titanic? I think it was two foot shorter. Ah. Uh, um, uh, it, 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 they, they did put in lots of new safety precautions. They double skinned the interior. They made sure that the bulkhead doors would close and not, you know, and not be jammed open by something. Uh, but unfortunately that didn't happen as they were preparing to, you know, sail into Kia and they wanted to ventilate the ship so that it would be fresh for the wounded that they were going to bring on board. Um, and the torpedo struck or the mine struck or the bomb, the sabotage uh, struck, uh, whichever you care to believe, um, uh, at uh, the precise moment that the stoker's shift was changing and all the bulkhead doors were open. And then the explosion did cause some of them to jam. Mm. I also read that the coal pile may have been part of the combustion process, that there may have been a slow yeah. simmering fire in the coal, which could have also caused a tremendous explosion, which they also said may have also contributed to the Titanic, although the, obviously we know the Titanic was more of well, a side yeah. opening. No, I think coal dust is highly combustible uh, and uh, uh, it, it's, it is quite possible that there was a contributory uh, explosion. Uh, we you know, obviously make, you know, we go for the sabotage thing because of, you know, a, a spy is more interesting than a torpedo. Uh, <laughs> uh, and though naturally I had to have a torpedo and I had to have good close-ups of the torpedo, you know, cruising along underwater, dodging the bullets uh, of the, the 1912 actual Lewis gun that we got to fire at it that kept jamming. Uh, but uh, you those know, darn those, Lu those darn Lewis guns. No perils of, uh, you know, they will always jam uh, when you don't want it to. Uh, but well, Brian, we, we got it to work. Well, Brian, there, there are two other films I wanted to talk with you tonight, but we've uh, extended ourselves a little too long, but I want to have the, I want to speak like an attorney and have the power to call you back as a witness at a later date. Uh, by all means, thank you so much, Steve. I, I hate a chat, as you may have gathered. Uh, and, uh, uh, <laughs> well, you and, anyway. I are, you and I are kindred spirits because we just both, yes. both love movies. We love talking yes. about movies. We love the classics. Uh, I, I love watching your trailers from hell. Uh, mm. Always fun to see. And everyone, you've been watching Saturday Night at the Movies, the new video version of my podcast. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And our wonderful guest this evening is Brian Trenchard Smith, author of, to you. <laughs> author of 
Put up your book one more time, please, so they know exactly where it is. Yes. Adventures in the B-Movie Trade, which is yep. which uh, has plenty of illustrations, as he's pointed out. And, you know, uh, as much as people love our, our prose, they even appreciate our photos even more. Yeah. Yep, that's there true. You go. There you go. Fabulous. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. As Colonel Saunders. I met <laughs> Colonel Saunders. That's another story. That's another story. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll nice see to you. talk to you, Steve. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your attention. Thank you. Uh,